Hello and welcome to the third episode in this podcast series from the Linklater's Employee Incentives team. I'm Ben McCarthy, an associate in the team here in London. And I'm Mirit Ehrenstein, Council PSL in the team. So our theme has been the key remuneration trends under the current corporate governance landscape. Now in this episode, we are going to look at four distinct governance areas with developing impact on executive pay. These are pay ratio disclosure, pension contributions, malice and clawback, and post-employment shareholding requirements. Let's dive straight in, Ben. The first, disclosing CEO employee pay ratios. A very brief recap on the requirements, I think, first. Sure. So, UK incorporated listed companies with 250 or more UK employees must report on the ratios of CEO pay to the pay levels of employees earning at the 25th, median, and 75th percentiles. They must use one of three options set out in the legislation to calculate the employee's pay, actual data, gender pay gap information, or other. The CEO pay is taken from the remuneration report single figure table disclosure, and they must do this each year, building up to 10 years of disclosure. Exactly. Again, like the other corporate governance reforms, this has been enforced for financial years since 2019, and some companies reported a year before that on a voluntary basis. So 2020 was the second or third, if they reported voluntarily, year of reporting. So this year, for the first time, companies must analyze their data and do three things. One, explain any reduction or increase in the ratios. Two, explain the reasons for such changes. That is, whether the changes are due to changes in CEO pay, employee pay, or structural changes to the workforce, for example, contracting out. And three, they must comment on the trend in median pay ratio. And also, Marie, this year, companies have to consider whether COVID-19 has had any exceptional impact on CEO or employee pay over the reporting period, so that any skewing of data for 2020 due to COVID-19 can be articulated in the reasoning and trend analysis. CEO pay, and so the figure used for the ratio, may have been impacted by voluntary pay cuts or waivers, reduced or cancelled bonuses, and the same for LTIP awards due to performance outcomes or share price decreases. Finally, on a non-COVID related point, reductions in pension levels may have caused a decrease in CEO pay from last year's reported figures. We're going to look at pension reductions in more detail in a minute. On the other hand, Ben, it may be that it's the employee pay figures which are quite different from last year's due to the impact of COVID-19. Here are three examples. Reduced hours, if implemented as a pay cut, will have an impact on employee pay figures, which are reported on a full-time equivalent basis. Secondly, companies will have to decide whether to include furloughed employees in the data or leave them out on the basis that they are on leave of absence. This may also affect gender pay gap calculations as special leave which is what furlough is, is disregarded for gender pay gap purposes. Uh, third example is that redundancies may affect lower paid employees disproportionately, 
so may impact the ratio. But what is not in doubt is the pay ratio is increasingly a metric which the media report on. That potential for media focus was anticipated with all the arguments for and against as to whether it provides meaningful data. This is really a new requirement, so we are only starting to get to a stage where trends may become apparent and influence discussions on pay within businesses as part of corporate governance. This really chimes at the current time with this focus on wider stakeholder engagements, the experience of the employee workforce, and ensuring that this is reflected in the company's approach to employees and corporate governance. Thanks, Ben. Moving away now from pay ratios and their impact, as discussed in previous episodes, the UK Corporate Governance Code continues to impact executive pay. The code is the framework for investors to provide details on their expectations. Most recently, investors have focused on three things. One, pension contribution rates for executives and aligning them to those of the wider workforce rates. Two, the scope and application of malice and clawback provisions. And three, implementing post-employment shareholding requirements. Thanks, Marie. So let's take each of those in turn then and dive a bit deeper. It's interesting in this context to see also how the regulator, the FRC, assessed how companies have reported compliance against the code. This is all in the FRC's review from last November on the state of corporate governance reporting, which sampled 100 FTSE companies' reports. So let's see what they said on pension contribution rates. The FRC found that only 32% of companies had aligned all their executive director pension contributions with the workforce rates. This is far less than expected. The FRC was concerned that some companies did not disclose pension workforce rates and also flagged that 43 companies had stated that they complied with the corporate governance code but didn't actually do so because they hadn't aligned pension contribution rates. The FRC says that contributions which are not aligned have become increasingly contentious with many companies facing shareholder dissent. Indeed, investors are heavily focused on this with the Investment Association saying this year that IVIS will red top remuneration reports where the rates for incumbent directors are above 15%. Previously, they tolerated rates of 25%. So this is quite a reduction. And this also illustrates two points we've touched on already in the first episode. First, a focus on wider stakeholder considerations coming through, which here is the alignment to the employee experience. Second, some very clear and hard statements on expectations from an investor body, which they are prepared to follow through with dissenting votes. And from what we have seen so far in the 2021 AGM season, investors are coming down hard on companies which are not aligning pension contribution rates. A reminder, they must do so for new directors on appointment and for incumbent directors, either align now or set out credible plans to do so by the end of 2022 as the Investment Association with other investor body support requires. The second area of focus is the scope and application of malice and clawback powers. Many companies have tried to widen the ambit of these powers 
But as we have seen, notably with the Karelian fallout, these things tend to be tested with hindsight. One lesson from Karelian is that treating an approach to issues such as malice and clawback powers as fixed can lead to trouble. This is because investor expectations continue to develop and the company circumstances will also evolve. So the question of do we have the right trigger events for malice and clawback continues to apply. There is also a clearer expectation that companies must have malice and clawback policies that can be operated if required and not just be plain words on paper. This means making sure that the whole chain of contractual and non-contractual documents by which we mean remuneration policies, plan rules, employment contracts and employee communications. Exactly, Ben. All these must be reviewed, updated and aligned. We're going to look at malice and clawback, powers of discretion and enforcement in much more detail later on in the second podcast series on risk and pay. Do look out for those episodes. Finally, post-employment shareholding requirements. This is another example where investor expectations have continued to evolve and harden since the new corporate governance code was published back in 2018. The Investment Association was first to publish quantitative expectations on the level of expected continued shareholding after leaving. They want the lower of actual holding at leaving and the required holding for a two-year period after leaving. The ISS have said they will look specifically at the post-employment shareholding requirements when considering whether to recommend a vote in favour of a new remuneration policy. And the Investment Association have actually gone further than that, Ben. They expect companies to have a clear process for implementing and importantly enforcing these requirements and to explain this publicly. The Investment Association are particularly concerned to see these enforcement powers where directors have left the company for obvious reasons. They refer to setting up trusts or nominee holdings. It's not really clear how many companies have so far done this, but there is certainly a movement that way. We are back to transparency and corporate governance being hand in hand here. Thanks, Marie. And it's uh, worth mentioning that you probably don't need to wait for your next remuneration policy to introduce or amend your shareholding and post-employment shareholding policy. This can often be done without shareholder approval. So please do get in touch if you'd like us to review your policies on this to bring them into line. In our next podcast episode, we're going to look at how governance around ESG is impacting pay and the likely developments there. Thanks, Marie.